My name is Matthew Libatique, ASC, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast, the one and only. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, everybody. Holy crap. If you're watching this on YouTube, then you probably can already tell. But we have a guest co-host today, none other than our intrepid composer, Kays Alatrachi. Kays, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, this is this is awesome. This is a great <laughs> honor. I mean, wow! Like I got to be able. To, actually, people finally get to see what I look like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess they could have gone to your YouTube channel this whole time. You are uh, the most multi-hyphenate of multi-hyphenates I know. You're an amazing composer, director, visual effects artist, and colorist. And yes. what what else do you do? <laughs> Tell the folks what else you do. Uh, right now, I've, I've I've just started like a real kind of weird hobby of like repairing old synths. I don't know. It just came out of nowhere. And I started like collecting vintage synths that don't work and I started repairing them. So I don't know. I guess like I'm a hobbyist electronics repair guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I also want to point out to anyone who's watching us on the YouTube channel that for the first time in history, probably there are two Alien Raiders posters, the movie that I directed and Kay's composed the score for. Uh, we, we both have an Alien Raiders poster in our uh, in our frame. There you go. Where? So before we hop in, we want to say we're very excited to have the legendary Matty Lee Batik on the show today, uh, talking about Maestro, his Oscar-nominated uh, cinematography in Bradley Cooper's Maestro. Uh, this marks Matty's fifth time on the show, making him our current reigning champion, uh, which means Faden Papa Michael and Checo Varese, you need to kind of up your game and come on back. And I always say this, if you were to come to my house, there is one movie poster hanging and, and Matty Liabatique shot it. I worship the guy's work. I think he's one of the best cinematographers ever. And now, Close Focus. Uh, we want to jump into our Close Focus. And Kay, since you are the guest co-host, I wanted to ask you what you wanted to be our Close Focus. I was going to talk about the BAFTAs and how, uh, you know, Hoyt von Hoytema, who was on the show last week, just won for Best Cinematography from the BAFTAs. And BAFTAs are precursors to the Oscars and, you know, <laughs> right. whatever. But you had something that you think is actually more important, and I, and I have to agree. What is it? Take it away. Okay. Okay, so originally I thought, hey, why don't we talk about Elon Musk potentially buying Disney? Because I thought, why not? <laughs> That's, that sounds interesting. Uh, and then no literally thanks. 30 seconds later after I mentioned that, all of a sudden there's this freight train that just came rolling out of nowhere called Sora. And this is um, a new video AI generation technology that just it came out of nowhere. This is made from the same people that made ChatGPT. Yeah, it's OpenAI. Open yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way I can describe it, you know, because I've been following this stuff like for the past year uh, since it really kind of started emerging. And the best way that I can describe it is that up until now, all of the video generation uh, that, that we've been doing with AI has been comparable to uh, Atari Pong. <laughs> and all of a sudden, and Sora looks like uh, Grand Theft Auto Five. <laughs> like, mm. It's just kind of like all of a sudden, it just kind of caught everybody by surprise, just because of the fact that it just looks like the real deal. Now, obviously, there are artifacts. There are still like uh, weird kinks. 
that they have well, to solve. And it, and it hasn't been released yet. It's not a. It's not publicly available yet. It's uh, it's in a closed beta that uh, only a lucky few are involved in right now. But uh, the idea is that like maybe like in a couple of months it's going to be available on a wider basis. It will probably still be in beta, but it will probably like uh, be available to more people. And this is still like the very very beginning. I mean, like uh, you know, we're still like in the early days of this technology. If people listening or watching haven't really seen what Sora is capable of, or just Google Sora, S-O-R-A, and take a look at some of the videos that are being generated with this technology, because it's honestly really mind blowing and a game changer. I mean, I think it is and it isn't. And, you know, as you know, I'm a big fan of goofing around with AI and generating stuff with AI. And I think it does create some, uh, like the stuff it's creating is undoubtedly amazing. And they show you the text prompts. Also, they are obviously cherry picking the like maybe 10 clips and they're all extremely impressive. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But, uh, you know, I wonder how many thousands of prompts as someone who has done some prompting in AI generation. This, I feel like it is the most promising. And I watched one of the YouTube channels I watch, this guy, Marquez Brownlee, who does tech reviews. Tech, he's like a tech vlogger. And he had a really good piece on it. And one of the things he pointed out, because like my complaint about it, about all AI is the same when people are like, they're going to replace us all. I'm like, okay, they're going to replace us all when somebody makes, you know, Sophie's Choice or Schindler's List or, you know, Django Unchained and they do it all using AI. I don't believe that day is ever going to come fully. I think that there's already AI rife in everyone's work. If you use any of the major editing platforms, you're using AI probably all the time. I believe it's going to find its way more into VFX. And one of the things that Marquise uh, Brownlee talked about was the people who should be where are people who do like stock photography. Like if you needed a drone shot of a beach, their drone shot of a beach looks like you. Would, if you saw it in a project, you wouldn't even question it. And to me, that's the thing that's most impressive about it is kind of the unparalleled realism of the clips that they have shared. The realism and when you see the human faces, like they really there's still a little uncanny valley going on with some of them there's still some artifacting and you know ai making up you know hands where they shouldn't be and stuff like that which we're all used to that but it is i agree it is hands down the best we've seen i i would also say that you know going back to the early 90s when we saw terminator 2 or jurassic park we were like oh you know special effects people practical effects are out of business because this stuff is too good and here we are you know 35 years later and practical effects still going strong and we all have an eye now when we see cgi we know it and when mid-journey first came out for instance i was blown away with that and now i feel like if i see a mid-journey image i i i know it maybe not mid-journey specifically but if it's adobe firefly or mid-journey or dolly i can tell when i'm looking at an ai generated image my assumption is we'll all be able to do that with video before we you know it yeah i mean i don't really see this replacing artists necessarily and where i would like to see this technology go is actually in some sort of guided way in the sense yeah. that uh, for instance i do a lot of cg stuff uh, you know for myself and for other people and um, i would love to you know for instance be able to in my cg program i use blender you know, to, to be able to kind of like set my camera move, uh, maybe use like some very, very basic geometry like cubes, uh, you know, spheres, things like that to kind of like describe the main elements of the scene and then be able to kind of feed that into something like Sora and say, okay, this is what I'm looking for from this camera move, from, from these objects that you see and basically have a technology like Sora realize that into a final image that looks mm. 
you know, like a million bucks. I mean, that's where I would love to see this technology go. So not a replacement for the artist, but rather a way for artists to be able to to create more refined, you know, end products in, you know, a relatively shorter amount of time. I'm sure yeah. it will still take take a while. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, like one of the people who I think is one of the best thinkers on AI in, in the creative workflow is Michael Cioni, who's talked about it a lot with his you know, now in private beta strata. He talks about how like what AI does best is take the load off of the artist. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I feel like if you were in Blender, I, I, I don't, I'm not the VFX artist you are. So I, I certainly lack the, the vocabulary, but if you're like, Hey, I need uh woods back here. And if Sora could create a 3d woods for you and you're like, Ooh, I wish there were more pines. Yeah. Oh, I wish it was a mix of pine and oak. Bing, you know, and it could do it faster for you than you having to like go on turbo squid or something and find a bunch of models or God forbid, model them all, you know, manually on your own. Um, I feel like it'll, it, it's going to lift that stuff. Also, I feel like, you know, stuff like explosions, hmm. water dynamics, uh, skies, sunsets, stuff like that. Like it's going to be great at generating completely unique versions of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I expect to see this integrated into all of these platforms in some some form or fashion pretty soon yeah i mean I, it, it could really be a game changer and uh th and as i said like i think what caught people by surprise <laughs> to the point where i i clicked on the link and all of a sudden i'm start looking at this video and i need to check my calendar because i'm like i didn't realize it was like april 1st already because <laughs> <laughs> i i genuinely thought it was a joke because we've been following runway we've been following some other ai generated videos and, uh, you know, they've gotten better since the, the days of the Will Smith <laughs> eats spaghetti yeah, uh, video. Yeah. Uh, but it's been like a very, very incremental, slow incremental improvement. And Sora, to me, is an order of magnitude better quality than anything we've seen. And, and I think that's what's caught everybody by surprise. I don't think people even realize that OpenAI as a company was involved in video generation of course it totally makes sense but you know but we didn't know that that's what they were yeah. working on everybody that i know of is is talking about this right now no and it's it's pretty amazing stuff and uh, i you know i also am led to understand anyway that open ai one of the things they're doing right now is kind of putting guardrails around the potential misuse of this stuff in terms of AI porn stuff or, you know, it, it is an election year. And if you could make a, you know, very realistic uh, version of one of the presidential candidates, I don't know, barbecuing a baby and it looked exactly real, that could be a real problem. And the thing about it is it does look good enough. And I think Marques Brownlee said this. Uh, it looks good enough that if you weren't expecting it, like if you just showed me the shots that they have there, I wouldn't have any reason to suspect most of it was AI, but also most of it is kind of mundane stuff or like it looks good it's eye-catching but it's not like again it ain't Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice like right. uh, I'll believe we're all screwed as filmmakers when I can actually be made to feel a certain way by an actor's performance that never existed you know from an actor who doesn't exist I don't suspect that's coming anytime soon but I know plenty of people disagree with me and uh, well I guess we'll just see who's right <laughs> well you know since you mentioned the the guardrails that are trying to be put in place so that uh, you know this AI is not used for evil <laughs> purposes. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going to tell you like a funny thing that happened to me recently. So I've been working on this TV show uh, for National Geographic and it's, um, I'm doing like a bunch of like visual effects for them, but they're kind of invisible visual effects in the sense that, uh, I mean, obviously it's all like nature scenes and things like that, that they're asking me to kind of like paint some stuff out. And I've been using the Photoshop, the AI generated content yeah, yeah. filler to, you know, to be able to kind of fix things and build background plates and it's worked fantastically. So I've been working recently on this shot that had this little piglet running around and the piglet apparently had just like taken uh, poop. So there was still like a little, uh, you know, piece of poop like stuck to his butt. And I was asked, can you paint this out? And I was like, sure, I can do that. Uh, so I brought it into Photoshop and I highlighted like the area around the piglet's uh, little butt. And then I write the description <laughs> and I'm trying to be like very medical, like scientific about this. Mm -hmm. And I just write like, you know, like pig anus. And, and all of a sudden I got this warning from Adobe and says, oh no, like, you know, like they, they basically thought that I was trying to like generate some sort of like porn or something like that. Mm. So they, they forbid me from being able to like generate what I needed. And I thought it was like really funny because obviously guardrails are a good thing to have in place, but there are some instances where you're genuinely needing, uh, you know, a pig anus. And yeah, sometimes, apparently it wouldn't allow you, me. <laughs> sometimes you just need a pig butt. I don't think we can go any deeper on this now. Uh, <laughs> l let's go ahead and get to the interview with Maddie Lee Boutique. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Matthew Libatique, welcome back to the Cinematography Podcast. It's so great to, to have you with us again. Yes, it's nice to see you again, Leah. Thank you. You've got a movie, a little movie, called Maestro. It's not little at all. As a matter of fact, it's nominated for some Academy Awards. You're nominated for an Academy Award for this movie. Congratulations. The movie is, be is beautiful. It's great. Uh, okay, so I know this was a really quick movie. It came together like overnight. No, I'm kidding, of course. It's famously, it was in pre-production and preparation and testing for like six years. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, six years, is this going back to like, does this predate or very close to the same time as your last collaboration with Bradley Cooper? How long has this been going on? Well, it's basically, we started to talk about it around the award season during that year. Mm -hmm. So around award season, uh, surrounding a star is born. He had started to talk to me about his next project that he wanted to do this film about Leonard Bernstein. There was no screenplay at the moment at that time, but, um, you know, there's a lot of ideas going through his head and how he wanted to approach it, how he saw things. And that changes over the course of time. You know, we had, I would say it was five years before we started to actually prep the film in a traditional way. But from 2019, 2020, different ideas would come. And we, I think we made it, maybe shot our first test in 2019 or earlier 20. And then we ended up shooting another one after the shutdown. And uh, it, it was just a luxury, I guess. You know, to have that time to look at different things and to actually, you know, hear his ideas out and see, hear the creative mind, the, the vision sort of evolve within Bradley and and just be there for it. So you could see, like, you know, remember when we thought it was going to be this? Well, now it's this. So it was it's pretty cool. Like, it's pretty cool to be a part of. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. And there's no wasted shots. I, I don't know how else to describe it. There is not a single wasted shot. Every single shot has so much intention. It's so much direction and reveals information. I, I think this is going to be an unpopular choice, what I'm about to say. But I think possibly my favorite sequence in the movie is the montage between the past, uh, you know, the far past and then the 1970s. There's like, I want to say, 
five or six shots that are kind of strung together, basically from the, the moment you've got uh, Sarah Silverman and uh, Carrie Mulligan in the park to then the transition to color. And it's like shot after shot of sort of like, I want to say the salad days of like the Bernstein, sort of like being together with their kids and sort of like, you know, uh, this combination of work. And then there's this incredible dissolve that sort of happens with Felicia standing in the wings of a performance from, you know, one time to another. Every single one of those shots feeds so nicely into the next. I'm curious, how did that little sequence, which seems like it could have just been so inconsequential, boom, it's one time period, boom, it's the next. How did that three minutes of of beautiful screen, I, I think my favorite shot in that whole piece is again, Felicia in the wings and you have the silhouette of Leonard conducting sort of cast over it. Can you talk just about this little montage, this little moment in the movie? Well, when you speak of her standing in the wings, that's sort of everything. That sort of uh, is the metaphor of the film, really, and their life. Because it's a film about this, these two people and their lives together, the love affair that they had, and all the dysfunction that came with it. You know, the, her standing in the wings was basically the same thing she was doing in life. She put everything on hold. She made that choice consciously on her own to stand there. And, the you know, obviously the visual metaphor of the shadow sort of overtaking her was something that was, um, you know, Bradley had in mind. We actually tested that years ago on a much smaller scale to see if it worked. And it worked great because mostly because when we landed on her face in the test, it was, it's like we shot the movie already. And mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, we were testing, we had Mark Bridges, the costume designer, testing clothes out. We had hair being tested. Um, Cosm did some work, I think, on, uh, on some of the prosthetics that were on her face to age her at that moment. And this is during a test. So when we got came to the day, it was just like, we were just uh, reenacting something we had already did, but it was, we spent a lot of time getting it right. We spent a lot of time trying to get the crane to not shadow because uh, it was crossing the front light that was hitting her. I mean, the front light that was creating that shadow was also about to create a crane shadow. So we were using a cue of uh, blading a moving light while the crane was moving in. So we were sort of have to time it out so that the, the blade would be right just ahead of the crane so we never shadow and then there's a crossfade of lights above so that by the time we got in front of her all that light was gonna though that was coming from behind camera before was gone and we went with a higher source so trying to blend all that stuff in was from a lighting standpoint tricky and from just a logistical standpoint getting the camera right and then the crane in position the light in position to create the shadow was really tricky but in terms of the whole the whole montage what i love about it is bradley had this motif and the motif was her standing in the wings i think it happens maybe three times in the film um and it and, and most magically i think it happens after the ely cathedral and it was it was basically that it's like that repetition and that concept that she's waiting in the wings and that montage sort of speaks to that end sequence with at ely because like you said it was at the beginning where it was a sort of the salad days of the bernsteins but you know it's the salad days of everybody you, you've gotten together you're you're married you're having your children they're all young you know, you're, you're sort of living this life with all this potential and you still had years ahead of you. When you cut the color, they're right in the middle of it and they have less years ahead of them. The kids are grown up. And uh, I think it's, it's supremely relatable <laughs> to many people. But yeah, that was, it was really visual motifs that he wanted to, uh, that Bradley really wanted to uh, incorporate into that montage. So there's more than one montage in this movie. There's some very distinctive ones. There's there's another one later in the movie where Carrie ends up on the bed. T- tell me uh, tell me about this this montage. How did how did this uh, this one fit together? Well, there's two things that when I first read the first the first draft when I first read it, 
there's two scenes that really caught my eye uh, and my imagination because they were sort of explained in camera. They were there's sort of there's camera direction in terms of like God's POV at the beginning of the film, basically pulling Lenny into his destiny. The next one was the shot. We are in the midst of a luncheon, a daytime luncheon with Lenny's mentor, Kusevitsky, and his friend Aaron Copeland and Felicia. And um, he's getting shit from the guy saying he can never be a major conductor with the name Bernstein. Felicia turns to him and says, uh, you know, I'd like to see all these things. And he was being criticized for all the show, the, all the theater he'd been doing. He thinks he should concentrate on being a great conductor. But Lenny had, you know, he, he had a lot of loves. He had a lot of passions. He had a lot of ambition. So um, we end up, she, Felicia shows an interest in seeing some of these things and then just pulls him into basically away from that table into a transition into the St. James Theater in New York. And we're in a performance of Fancy Free. Jerome Robbins' Fancy Free, music by Leonard Bernstein. And then we're watching this ballet happen before us, and he's watching it. And, you know, we go from there into On the Town, which is like a medley, and then it gets very intense. And then there's a scene where, you know, they lose each other amidst all these dancing extras, and then they come together into the form of like a little mountain. And then you transition into the same uh, same shape with their feet intertwined underneath a sheet, and then it pulls away, and then we, we brought into it the end of their night and to me i was like that was all described it's just that one of those rare cases for me at least it's where the the writing really matched up with what we ended up doing and very early on i mean there were subsequent drafts obviously there's more drafts of the script but those 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 moments that he had crafted ahead of time um never really went away Mm. um something we, we, the, at first it was supposed to be a crowded theater mm. we opted not to have a crowded theater and make it simple simpler or easier to attain but um, I think it, there was a lot of challenges in that for us. So I'm particularly proud of it. Uh, it was really fun to do. I mean, I had a lot of anxiety moving into it, but then when we achieved it, it was uh, gratifying. Yeah, you, you totally pull it off. There, there's a couple of other sort of moments that, you know, in this conversation, it reminds me of like, it, it almost feels like a throwaway, but it's so masterfully done where there's exposition going on in this transition between different points in the Bernstein's life uh, when they're like entering this hallway, like they're just coming home, but then they round the corner and they sit down on the couch and it's revealed that they're inside of a studio and there's this voiceover exposition explaining like, you know, what's going on with their lives. It's just such a nice little transition moment, just sort of like a walking in from here to there and then boom, we're in a completely different space, all seamless, no, no cut, no nothing. When you're on set and you're pulling each of these off, is it a more visceral thrill than, than other types of uh, other types of gags? The, the, uh, the oneer like this? Well, anytime you, it's like, it is a team sport, you know, it's a director's medium, but it's a team sport. So when you do a one, there's a lot of people involved, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. mm -hmm. there's a lot of people going on, so, you know, the dolly grip, the operator, obviously focus puller, those are the normals, but then you have the lighting, the, the cues happening with the, the programmer. And then, you know, there's probably grips are doing, you know, moving flags and, and then, you know, you're just you're just employing everybody in the shot. So everybody, the whole set becomes invested in it. So it is a thrill each and every time because um, none of them are easy. They're all complicated and they're all gratifying because it's like, you know, somebody, everybody got to contribute some way to the shot. You know, um, you know, it could be as simple as the person who opens the door behind it so that the camera can get through an easier fashion. <laughs> But that one in particular is funny because we, you know, there, this was meant to be at the Dakota or no, at the Osborne, the apartment before the Dakota. They come in and they go into basically this really happened. Edward R. Murrow interviewed them 
but a camera crew came to their house. And when you look at the photos of that, it was like, you know, a huge cameras, huge lights all shoved into the corner of this space. And they're interviewing these poor people. And it's, it's roasting. When I, you know, I shot, I basically lit the hallway to a two eight mm. or two because I wanted to be maybe five to six stops over by the time I got inside. So basically going from the two to eight. And as we got in, it was just blown out. And then from like, I did like a five stop rack as we started to get closer to them and wrap around so yeah. that it would be at exposure when we got around it. But those are fun. Just crafting that stuff and sort of doing the math. It's like cinematographer gymnastics. And it's funny. <laughs> it is. I, I think it's, I think it's so much fun too, because the movie tells you, it tells you the story in a couple of different ways. And it, it's a little bit uh, oblique just at the beginning because you've got Leonard Bernstein at the piano. Uh, he's older. There's these bookends for, for the whole piece, giving, giving nothing away here, but through the course of the movie, Sarah Silverman's character, uh, Shirley Bernstein, she she says to Carrie Mulligan in the scene just before that sequence, like, you know, you pay a price to be in the orbit of my brother. He, she says, like, you know, she, she forewarns him and she kind of like sets it out. And that's sort of like the end mark of like act one. And then you get to kind of see the, the changes of the relationship and the whole rest of the story. And it's this, this wonderful vignettes of a marriage, of a relationship, of a life and all this stuff. Now, there's a little bit of hopping from time to time. There's a little bit of continuity in your discussions with Bradley Cooper and, and figuring out how you were going to make this movie visual. Was there a North star? Was there something that you kept going towards? You've got these different segments. You've got these different looks. Did you say early on, we wanted sort of a classic Hollywood glamor for the beginning. We want sort of a, a different feel in the middle. You've got kind of like these different eras. How did, what was your North star for coming up with what you wanted each section to look like? Well, it's, I think it's two, uh, my answer is twofold. One is that Bradley and I sort of together, we agree and we sort of both are inclined to keep things as naturalistic as possible. Mm. So, uh, you know, instead of going for the glam, even though I think in some cases it might feel like an old movie at the beginning of the film, that's not, that wasn't intentional. I was just sort of trying to keep it more candid. Uh, obviously, you know, you want to shape the light. But uh, I was trying to keep it more candid. I, I was trying not to be too precious with the light. But uh, <laughs> Maddie, I know you. You cannot get away from a little bit of glamour. You cannot get away. <laughs> like you, 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 I, you. Even if you say you want to keep it naturalistic, there is. There's. You, first of all, you've got beautiful people to work with. They they look beautiful. Exactly. But like you call really quick attention to your work right in the beginning with this incredible crane sort of move from the moment that Leonard Bernstein gets the call that like his wish fulfillment is going to happen. It's like you're on that sort of like moment of excitement kind of carries through the different looks and the different feels all through it. Even if you say you want to be naturalistic and it is very naturalistic, it never looks lit. But Man, I, I got to give you props, too, for the ghost light sequence. Like at the beginning, like that is so stripped down and bare and raw when you've got uh, Felicia and Leonard on the, the the blank stage with just the ghost light. I know that wasn't the only thing lighting him, but man, that 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 is like hard light and glamour, even if it, yeah, I mean, that it's, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, it was the only source. We had some cues going on in there, too. But I hear what you're saying. But I, you know, that shot. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't say it was I was on when you pull back and you have that crane shot that pulls him into his destiny. I think the film is on. The film is on. We are into the story at that point. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The storytelling has begun. And, you know, we go back to the question. I think Bradley and I you gravitate towards naturalism because we we anything that sniffs or smells uh, false or pretentious. It's, it's just something to stay away from. Bradley has a, you know, a, a real sensitivity to it. 
Mm. And even if we shot it already and he has a feeling that maybe it's a little false, we'll do it again in a different way. Mm. Uh, you know, so many of the decisions in the film are because we've, we were able to just make the choice of making either a single shot or keeping the camera far away. Uh, it was just it, that spoke to sort of the mise-en-scene of the film. But, that, you know, beyond that, just from a uh, just approach standpoint, we'd show up every day and we were just trying to take the pages and make them better than what we had talked about before. Mm. You know, let's respond to the space. Let's respond to the rehearsals. Let's respond to Carrie. I mean, Carrie, the cinematography of the film would not be as successful if it wasn't for Carrie Mulligan because she's able to carry an entire scene in a medium shot, a close up or a wide. And in one case, she does it in all, all three facets. When you push in on her on one of her dying days, you push in from a, a full shot to a close-up on a 100-millimeter lens, she holds the entire scene. And uh, there's one cut back to her friends. It's just, uh, you know, it wouldn't be possible without the these amazing performances. Yeah, and they are truly amazing performances. Tell me a little bit about the decision-making between, is, is it an organic sort of like in the moment feel that when you say like, we want to carry this wide? Because wide is a bold choice. Wide, when you're on a 24 millimeter and your actor is 15 feet away, that's a different level of acting than if you're on a 90 millimeter and they're, you know, 18 inches from the, from the lens. It's like, it's a, it's a different level. What's, what's the process of breaking down the wide performance versus the close performance? And, and is there any difference? I mean, you, you have to be the eyes of the director when you're on set there, when you're, you know, you got to be given feedback for it, for his own performance. I'm, I'm assuming for a lot of the time. So talk about the, that, that choice of, you know, medium wide, close, and sometimes all three in the same shot. Well, yeah, the move is one choice. So you, you, you're, am I going to push in? Do I want to end tighter? Do I want to start wider because I want to see where I am? We did that a few times, but not many. I mean, the, what I like to look back on, a good example of what you know, you're asking, there's a scene in the beginning when they meet for the first time. He's playing piano at that party in Queens, and they're outside, outside the door with the party going on inside, and it's a one, three, three frame, and they're pushing the edges of it. Mm. They're just just bantering back and forth, you know, half of it's improv and half of it's dialogue from the script, you know, it's just going back and forth because they had this rhythm together. They could just keep going. Smash forward to Thanksgiving and it's the same frame. They're no longer pushing it. There's space all around them and the energy is a lot different. Clearly, uh, they've come a long way and now they're at this place here. So, you know, because Bradley's so editorially minded. He keeps in mind whether or not we're going to end a scene in a wide or start in a wide or end it in tight or start in a tight. So those are the conscious, conscious decisions, but those, they, don't, they, don't, they aren't necessarily made ahead of time. You know, we respond to, like I said, the, the rehearsals, we respond to the space and uh, we respond to the light and then we just react. And, and it's just very, I guess, for lack of a better word, it's organic, but I like to say it's, it's his process hmm. and it, it's a little unorthodox because, you know, there isn't a traditional shot list and we don't do traditional coverage. Mm. There's no editorial options. He's he's uh, like, what does Tarantino say? He's like, he's a he's a director, not a selector. Mm -hmm. And that's what Bradley does. Yeah, it, it sounds like a liberating way to work in some regards, because so much I, I'm sure you've experienced this so much of the job of the DP is sometimes to cover someone's ass. It's like, well, I don't know how we're going to get out of here. We better do it a couple of different ways. But there's no cover in your ass. It's like you're making a choice. You're going for it. And it's going to work or it doesn't work. Is there, there any situation where you guys did something and you went, you know what? 
we we got to redo this. <laughs> we got we got to go back and do it again because we only had it the one way. Or have have you guys been batting a thousand from the get go? You just you I mean, get it. You don't you don't even know if you're batting a thousand. But we do, did know we were making choices, and it was the same way we did it the first time we worked together. I remember once uh, we were shooting anamorphic. And we were doing a shot where she's walking through the back of the, this is a stars born, by the way. And we're following Gaga going out into the stage for the first time to Shing Shallow. And there was something about like when you walk from backstage onto the stage of the Greek and you see the, the people, that's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. But somehow we weren't capturing that. Mm. And I realized it's like I slept on it and I called him that night. I was like, you know, I know, I know what the problem is. We need to switch to a spherical lens. You know, the spherical lens is going to make it feel wider when we get out there. It's going to make it feel bigger. It's not going to feel compressed. And we did that. We, we went and reshot it. And we both felt that it was wrong. So we were trying to figure out what we would do better. Um, and in this case, we would do similar things. Like when we shot Ely, for example, we shot for a couple of days. And what's in the movie is essentially some cutaways, but off of a one that we did the second day. And that's that's him as a director and a creative person like and an actor just learning or just sort of sleeping on it. And having a chance to come back the next day and then he came he comes up with this long uh choreographed technocrane shot that lands on felicia over the shoulder on felicia and you know that was the magic take that was the one where he got he got applause from the london philharmonic yeah, yeah. And, and forgive me i can't recall everything uh from your filmography since pi but was this the most you got to work in black and white in a long time i i'm trying to think of some some another yeah yeah no yeah. that was it i haven't worked this yeah. much in black and white damn well it's really fun. I love some of the black and white sequences in particular. There's a night exterior right, right before they go into the party with, I want to say, a bus coming into the foreground. And it's like dark shadows and, and you know, street lights in the distance and that sort of stuff. It's just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous to see that. That real black and white, that real black and white and real intention and style. Did you guys have a, a list of black and white movies or photography or anything like that that, that you referenced when you when you wanted to to really, you know, that that whole sequence, that the whole beginning of the movie, I think, just kind of sucks you in and, and sets you up for the rest of the ride. Were there any other references? I'm sure Pie was probably not a reference. It's a very different black and white looking pie. So, so tell me you say that i mean i yeah. put together some references to black and white so we can get on the same page about how to approach the black and white yeah. i put together an apple album of uh frames yeah from movies from like uh Ida to manhattan the sweet smell of success you just you name that what do we want yeah yeah nothing really saying to him <laughs> you know it's just it didn't but but when we started looking at still photography i mean specifically like elliot Irwin, and then there was some really candid stuff that uh, a, a man by the name of john bruin photographed and interviewed them on vacation in the late 60s when they were and uh, um, they were in it, uh, southern Italy on vacation he did a book called the life and times of Leonard Bernstein those photographs were so like they're black and white and they're very candid and very natural so between those two and then I I always have the long-standing sort of memory of all, all, all my Roy de Carava images so I think you know those are my guide those are my guiding lights for the work um it wasn't necessarily films i mean we just didn't just didn't see one that looked like what we wanted to look like sure yeah i got it uh all right before i forget i was gonna i was gonna throw this out there right now i did not watch a trailer to maestro as a matter of fact i've made a decision there's only a few people out there i watch zero trailers for anything that they have coming out and matter you're one of those people if you are shooting something i don't want to see anything anything before I go into the theater to have that experience for the first time. I want to have everything sort of like wash over me, like complete and whole. When you are working and you have to do the same things over and over again, you have to revisit the same places. 
Do you ever get lost in the weeds? Do you ever feel like, you know, have we seen this before? How do we make this difference? What is your process of keeping things straight? Because, God, this movie feels so well put together and it, it feels like the scenes that harken back to each other reference each other just enough without it ever being repetitive, without it ever feeling like we've already seen this. Now, some of it, I'm sure, is just because you've done this for long enough now. You've, do, you've done this a couple of times. But how do you keep yourself organized? How do you keep yourself on track? I mean, I... Um I spent a lot of time in prep, just sort of. Uh, I do a spreadsheet, to be honest with you. Yeah, spreadsheet. And all I right. break down. Uh, I break the whole movie down by scene and by all the way down to equipment that I want to use for it, and uh, sometimes color temperature and filtration, and you know, just because I like to think the movie through at least once or twice. It's almost like writing it for cinematography and writing notes for every scene. So I do. I do a spreadsheet, and then that that helps me get in contact and sort of really intimate with the screenplay. And the story and the order of scenes and I, you know, down to like how many pages a scene is, I'll have it memorized by the time we go. I don't even look at the call sheet for that information. You know, I just see what the scene numbers are. I kind of get the name. I, get, I know what we're doing. I And it's be through that that I could I could stay in contact with the director. And with Bradley, it's like things happen. Like he'll change something the next day. He'll have an idea or he'll text me and he's like, you know what? We're going to do this. I want to do it this way um, because it's it's in constant motion. So for me, because I have the foundation down and I know where we're coming from, I have no problem deviating from it. Um, and I think that's what really helps is just, just doing your homework ahead of time and really sort of immersing yourself in the narrative and the screenplay and just trying to know it. You're never going to know it as good as the director. Well, sometimes maybe, but not in this case. You know, you just have to you just have to uh, try to get as good as you can. Better, better than the producers, better than the line producers. You know, they're, they're looking at different things. At the moment where I'm photographing it, I should know it as well as anybody. Yeah, well, it, it clearly comes through. I mean, you've got it. You've got it down cold. Uh, if you can say, are you are you onto something else or, uh, now? Are you uh, taking some time off? What what's uh, what's next for for Maddie Libatique? <laughs> no. Uh, no, well, thankfully I'm not. We took a, plenty of time off during the strike, so no, I'm not taking any time off. I um, I'm doing a film with Spike Lee uh, next. I'm prepping right now. It's a well, it's a film based on uh, Kurosawa's High and Low. Oh wow. Nice. Yeah. Are you able to stay local? Are you sleeping in your own bed or you have to you have to travel for this one? No, I'm I moved to New York, so I'm local. All right. Very good. <laughs> Shoots in New York. I live in New York. So excellent. All right. Well, Maddie, uh, this has been a delight as as always. It's great having you here. Uh, yeah, you're, you're like a reigning champion. You got to like uh, we got to have you come back and, and do something different next time. Maybe you should host the show or something for us. I, I know you can do that, too. I've, I've seen you at the ASC Awards. So well, we can do it together. We could get somebody on there and I could I could be the heckler. Yeah, I'd love it. That'd, that'd be great. So, uh, <laughs> Maddie, it's so much fun. Uh, great seeing you, and best of luck with the awards and all that. And congratulations on the nomination. It, I mean, it's 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 a fantastic achievement, and uh, I I can't, man, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Ilya. I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, so that was Maddie Lee Batik. Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, congratulations for all the success of maestro we are all keeping our fingers crossed on oscar night i don't know it's impossible f for me to uh to take any sides on oscar night because uh, honestly like all, all five of the nominated films are just so amazing and look so great like uh we haven't had janelle riley on yet this year but we always kind of talk about how like you know we can think of movies that we wish were nominated but there's never one where we're like oh yeah get rid of that one that one's no good so like all, all five of these movies really deserve it i'm i i can't wait to see who wins and now, short ends.
So now we are at our uh, patent pending segment of the show that we always do, uh, Short Ends, where we talk about our uh, obsession of the week. I I have no idea what your pet obsession is. Uh, Take it away. I'm excited to hear what it is. Okay, so this week, my pet obsession is a documentary that I just watched a couple of days ago on Netflix about the recording of We Are the World. I don't know how old the listeners are, but hopefully uh, you remember that We Are the World was a really, really big thing in 1984. And um, basically... I I, I think it's fair to say that a vast majority of our listeners probably weren't alive. But, you know, (laughs) you, you and I are, you know... Uh, middle age. We'll be generous and say middle age. So, you know. So, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Re- regardless, though, th- this is like a really interesting documentary. Uh, the title is called The Greatest Night in Pop, and it is available on Netflix. And um, I know how difficult it can be just to get uh, me, <laughs> Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman to just kind of like set up a date that we can kind of hang out and grab a bite and yeah. chat and catch up in person. So, if you can imagine trying to get, I think like 45 of the biggest stars in music and in busiest. 1984 and busiest in the same recording studio on the same night to record this song. And, um, and you know, and I thought it was like an incredible feat. The documentary does a really, really great job at, uh, at showing like the preparation of it. Uh, Lionel Richie and uh, Michael Jackson were kind of like driving force behind it, uh, guided by Quincy Jones. And I thought I had like some really genuinely interesting moments. I mean, I, you know, I'm dating myself by saying that like, you know, I, I lived through that. You and so, me both. You know, yeah. So for, for me, it was like a really exciting time to, to kind of um, see all of my heroes at the time come together and record a song. But watching the documentary for me was like really, really interesting because for the first time, you kind of get to see a little bit like some of the behind the scenes of what actually happened, how everything came together. I hope I'm not it's okay to like at least give a little spoiler for uh, something that's in the documentary that I really, really enjoyed. And that is Bob Dylan. He had to do like, uh, he had to record uh, a line for the song. You know, he had like a little solo part. And uh, when they brought him up to the microphone and they're like, all right, go. He genuinely did not know how to sing it. Like he was frozen. He was like, uh, I think he kind of felt completely out of his element. Mm-hmm. and didn't really know what to do. And they did take after take after take, and Bob Dylan was just literally like just kind of whispering into the microphone, not really sure oh, what no. he was supposed to sing. <laughs> so I can, he- I can hear happened, his point, like as you're describing it, there's a chance we'll take it. I remember it as a kid, and I had no idea who Bob Dylan was when I heard that for the first time. Like my parents right. had, to, had to explain to me who Bob Dylan was. But but here's what's interesting from the documentary, as I said, like a little spoiler alert. So what ended up happening to get Bob Dylan to sing that way was that Stevie Wonder brought him to the piano and Stevie Wonder started making an imitation of Bob Dylan to Bob Dylan to show Bob Dylan how he should sing. So it Holy was crap. Stevie Wonder that really came up with like, this is jazz with me, you know? That's funny. <laughs> And basically said, here, sing, sing it this way. And then Bob Dylan is like, oh, okay. And that's exactly wow. what ended up happening. And I thought it was like hilarious. Do, so, they, ex- um, do they explain why Dan Aykroyd is in, the, in that video? I've never understood why Dan Aykroyd is singing We Are the World. Because he's a blues brother. Oh. 
And of course, uh, John Belushi was no longer with us at that time, so that's why we didn't have both. both, Because I just don't, I don't really think of Dan Aykroyd as a, I mean, it's not that he's a bad singer, but I don't think of him as, singing isn't the first thing that pops into my head when I think of Dan Aykroyd. Right. I mean, the the other funny thing is that they were like desperately, desperately trying to get Prince. Yeah. And and they were trying every which way. And, uh, you know, the the only way that that they could get all these artists in the same city here in Los Angeles to show up at this recording studio was because the American Music Awards was happening that night. So, and Lionel Richie was presenting at the American Music Awards. So literally, as he gave out awards, he would like take people backstage and say, okay, as soon as you're done with this, head straight to the studio. Um, A&M Studio, by the way, which, um, you know, for anybody that lives in Los Angeles, A&M Studios is where the Jim Henson studios are nowadays. Oh, that's so um, weird to think of that. I drive past that all the time. Right, on La Brea. So yeah. uh, so if, I, if anybody wants, wants to know where, where the world was recorded, that's where it was recorded. And as I said, they're trying to get Prince out to the recording because Prince was like a big deal in 1984. He was the <laughs> yeah. biggest the biggest deal in 1984. Like that was, you're at peak Prince right in those like sweet like three, four years there. Yeah, so, so, so they, they got Sheila E. to show up and Sheila E. is like desperately like every break she's trying to call Prince on the phone and say, Prince, you really need to be here. Like everybody's here, you know, it's like like uh, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, uh, Daryl Hahn, John Oates. I mean, you know, like uh, Huey Lewis on the news. Everybody's here, Cindy Lauper. And, uh, and Prince was basically just kind of parting nearby and he was just like, nah. He's- I don't he's feel like, like it. He's like, I'm at El Coyote and I just got a margarita. <laughs> Leave me alone. Exactly. Wow. Anyway, so um, so anybody that's interested, uh, even if you don't really know anything about We Are the World, I think it's an excellent documentary and I highly recommend checking it out on Netflix. All right. So let me uh, give you my short end, my, my uh, pet obsession. It's kind of weird. It's a YouTube channel called Hanging with Dr. Z. Have you heard of this? I have not. So comedian Dana Gould and I'm a huge fan of Dana Gould as a stand-up comic and he has kind of if you watch a lot of his stand-up comedy you'll see he has a little bit of an unhealthy obsession with Planet of the Apes and uh, so what he's cooked up is it's a talk show it's a little bit like primetime glick where it's kind of a parody of a talk show but he gets real guests on it because he you know Dana Gould was a writer on The Simpsons and he's just been around forever he like knows everyone in in the comedy world and season three of this just dropped but he interviews everyone as Dr. Zayas from Planet of the Apes he's in a full Dr. Zayas get up the full makeup okay. uh, costume and kind of creates like a in again in a similar way to what Martin Short did with Jiminy Glick and Primetime Glick he kind of creates right. like a weird mythology about you know Dr. Zayas you know getting you know drunk with Charlton Heston or you know I'm, I'm kind of butchering it not doing it any justice but then he gets like for real uh, guests on there a lot of them are, are pretty famous and the third season just dropped is, is this a little bit like uh, Space Ghost from Coast to Coast is that it, like a little it, bit lo- that vibe it is uh, especially the first season because the first season was a COVID project so he was actually interviewing people on a TV monitor now he has people one-on-one so like he had uh the the newest one is Sven Gulli, the spook show host <laughs> and it's a younger guy the real Sven Gulli died a long time ago uh but he had Jason Alexander Howie Mandel Lorraine Newman and Kevin okay. Pollock on so far in this third season and uh I I think Dana Gould is a treasure I think he's one of the finest comedians working today I I've, I've been a giant fan of his for years and it's just funny when you see somebody's like weird picadillos like he 
he in his stand he did a stand up special ten years ago where he spontaneously went into a Doctor Zayas impersonation, and it, not just a vocal impersonation, but the physicality and everything of it, and uh, and it's just I, it's, I, I, I would I wouldn't know what that's supposed to sound like, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, because it's like the original Planet of the Apes from the nineteen sixties, right. and it's just hilariously weird because the makeup looks like the nineteen sixties Planet of the Apes, which at the time yeah. was groundbreaking and today looks kind of silly. Um, much like how AI looks to us now, you know, like right now we're our jaws on the floor in 10 years from now, we'll be like, really, that's all you got, whatever. But, uh, anyway, the episodes are usually under 15 minutes long. They're very funny. The guy who plays his band leader is funny. He does like a monologue and then he goes into an interview. The interviews are kind of a mix of like genuine stuff. And whoever he's interviewing is clearly in on the joke. A lot of them are comedians, but some of them aren't. And uh, they're just funny interviews. And it's uh, just a clever idea. And I I think a great use of of YouTube, a great use of your YouTubing time. You know, like to me, it's like I could watch that or I could watch hot ones. I'll I'll, I'll watch either one of those. I, I love them both. It's very snackable is is what people call call this kind of stuff. I like that term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to check it out. Yeah, you're sitting at the DMV. You know, you you got 15 minutes to kill. Watch a couple episodes (laughs) of uh, Hanging with Dr. Z. It's really funny, and I just think Danny Gould's the best. That's awesome. I'm going to go check it out. Do it up. So before we go, that that's it. That wraps us up. Before we go, where can people find you? I tell people every week where they can find you, but now you get to tell them yourself. Okay, so they can find me um, if they're interested in uh, checking out some of my music. They can uh, go to musicbykays.com, and uh, if they're interested in some of my films, they can go to guess what moviesbykays.com. Oh, I've never I've never plugged moviesbykays.com. <laughs> moviesbykays.com, it's a thing. So uh, so that way people can kind of pick and choose. And that's K A Y S. Just uh, just just to be clear. That, that is correct, K-A-Y-S. Or uh, they can also find me on Instagram at K's Filmmaker. Now, my Instagram account is Benjamin underscore rock because I didn't actually think it was going to be a thing. I was like, yeah, I, 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 in Neptune Salad, I think it was already taken at the time, so I, I gave up easy. But you do have benrock.com, and that's I do, priceless. I, that is priceless, and I'm very happy every day to the the fine folks at the Brunswick Corporation for finally selling me my own name. They didn't really sell it. They just... <laughs> It was the cost of a domain transfer. They, they were awesome. Anyway, so now, now's the time where we like to thank everybody. I'm going to make you thank everyone. How about that? The first person that we really need to thank is Alana Cody. Always. Because she's responsible for putting this thing together, and I think she's just awesome. She is awesome. We would be nowhere without Alana. The second person that I want to thank profusely today, because <laughs> hopefully he's going to make me sound smart, <laughs> is Ben Katz. Sweet. And uh, Ben Katz, thank you for uh, editing all my ooms and ums and other ongoing things. And, <laughs> and the third person that we're going to thank is, uh, I guess I'm going to thank myself. This is like a, a new one for me. So right. thank you, Case, for the awesome music that you heard on this show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you, Case. Yeah, I actually, I only, only partway into that was I'm like, oh, is Case going to have to thank himself? I feel like a, kind of a douche for making him do that. But but I, it's okay. It worked out. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, Case, thank you so much for coming on and stepping in while Ilya is Absolutely. Doing, doing fancy stuff in London and not available to us. And uh, to all, those of you watching and listening, thank you for tuning in. That's, that's how we're ending these now, I guess, because I guess that's what we do now. Whatever tuning in means in 2024. Yeah, nothing got tuned. No, no tuning. Anyway, but thank you nonetheless. 
This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.